happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the Antech Situation Room, episode 273 for October the 26th, 2022. My name is Wes Fryer. I am coming to you from my aspirational cabin, thanks to, uh, what is it called? XCAM, VCAM. Uh, XSplit VCAM. XSplit VCAM and Dr. Neifer's recommendation. Uh, and I am in Charlotte, North Carolina, actually, uh, where I am the media literacy and robotics teacher at Providence Day School in the middle school. And I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Jason Neifer, who I hardly recognize because I actually got a haircut, but you might didn't notice that. But if you've been watching the shows for a while, you would have noticed that Dr. Neifer has cut the mane at last. So welcome, Dr. Neifer. How are things in Missoula, Montana tonight? Uh, I am super well. And in fact, uh, tomorrow I'm getting my haircut again. Like it's time for the next uh, trim. So I'm back on a regular haircut schedule, which I have to say, I enjoyed my long hair, but um, now seeing pictures of myself, uh, I was a little bit ridiculous. So I, I am enjoying the new, um, you know, more high and tight haircut. Um, and as my wife pointed out to me the other day, I always, especially after a couple of weeks after having cut, always have a feather thing going for me. That's just the power of my hair. So I'm enjoying that as well. Um, but as much as I'd like to spend the next hour talking about my hair, uh, Wes, what is this podcast all about? Well, we are an almost weekly, usually weekly, but not last week, show where we're going to talk about the tech news through an educational lens. Generally, uh, we both put in some links. Tonight, Dr. Neifer has done all of the work, and I will be scrambling behind the scenes to put a few of the links in, which I have tweeted and allowed if this, then that to via hashtag uh, move over to a Google Doc. You can check out that Google Doc if you visit edtechsr dot com slash links and uh, scroll down to our episode. This is ep this is the Google Doc for episodes 201 on. We went ahead and did finally split our episode. So the last 73 are on this doc. But we are going to talk tonight about the Google. <laughs> I think there's about 15 links there. Uh, Microsoft, Apple World, and eh, it's probably a good 10 links there. AI, media literacy, video conferencing, podcasting, the tech correction, just ed tech and the geeks of the week. Dr. Neifer, you have gone above and beyond, but of course we were off a week. So that does lend, or that does lead to having a few more links than we might normally have. But before we jump into the meat of the show, uh, I think we need just like a, a weather update and a Montana update. So tell us what's, what's new in big sky country, both weather wise and otherwise. Sure. Well, um, Montana has experienced a quick turnaround from kind of like late summer to what is effectively winter now. Uh, three weeks ago, we had 80 degree days, uh, in Western Montana and t it seems like that the trees were just starting to turn. And then we've, we've had snow, uh, not, we had some flurries here in Missoula the last 48 hours, but, uh, for example, my in-laws, which live up in the mountains outside of Helena, the capital of, of, of Montana, um, they've had full on snow uh, up there. So uh, winter is definitely here. We'll, we'll get some, uh, uh, very temperatures in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and, you know, really for us, uh, winter is when snow kind of starts and then doesn't end, right? Like it doesn't, uh, uh, uh let up much or we don't get a lot of warm days. There's some parts of the state that do get what's called Chinook winds, um, from, uh, warm winds from, from north of, the United States that can warm things up occasionally, but yeah, de winter's definitely here. And Wes, I'm wondering what does winter look like in your new neck of the woods? Well, uh, we are in, in the full, um, the full hold of fall or whatever. I'm not saying that right, but, uh, the fall leaves in North Carolina, which was literally one of the main reasons, one of, one of the big reasons among others that we moved to the area about three weeks ago, they had the peak. And so we were up in, well, outside Asheville and Montreat a couple weeks ago, this past weekend, we drove three hours west to Bryson City and went on the Smoky Mountain Railroad. And they had a five-hour excursion to Dillsboro, a small little town. And uh, anyway, there was a they had gotten some rain and winds, I think, the previous week that had knocked some 
leaves down, but it's just beautiful. We're going to be pretty mild. Latitude-wise, I think we're about the same as Oklahoma City. For years and years, Oklahoma City, when we lived in Lubbock, Texas, it was like this band between the snow and the rain. And so I-40, my parents live in Kansas, and so we would, you know, sometimes be driving up there from Lubbock, which is about a 12-hour drive, and inevitably we would be on I-40 with ice. And when we actually moved there in 2006, we had a huge ice storm in 2007, dumped a foot of ice. That's the year that the iPhone came out. I remember it vividly because my wife got stuck in the house without power when I was gone for a while. So <clears throat> anyway, we are probably going to be, we anticipate much milder. Um, they can get the odd, you know, ice storm. They did get snow here last summer or last summer, last winter, but I think it was the first time in like four years or something like that. So pretty mild, but lots of leaves and beautiful colors and uh, lows in the 40s, highs in the 70s right now. Nice. It's just delightful Absolutely. and really um, not much wind at all. So that's a that's a, a welcome thing because we are accustomed to a lot of wind coming from Oklahoma. I think there was a musical maybe that somebody somebody did something <laughs> talking about wind at one time. So anyway, it is it's excellent. We're happy to be here and uh, you know feeling feeling a bit a bit more settled in at long last. Excellent. That's great to hear. So where would you like to start our conversation tonight? You did well, put about a hundred Google links in, so I think uh, yeah, we'll probably get to Google our, at some point. Carryovers from the past too that yes. probably at some point are not going to be news anymore. Um, and we'll in fact I eliminate two of them because they aren't news anymore. That that the reverse has happened. But let me start off by talking a little bit about some Apple stuff because it was a big couple of weeks actually in in Apple world uh, last week. Um, there was the release of new Apple stuff, and I want to talk about that for just a second uh, because it it does uh, it may impact holiday season purchasing. But uh, last week, as reported in Tom's Guide. There were three uh, products released at a kind of a mini event uh, last week, and the first one was the iPad Pro M2, uh, which is the new iPad Pro with the updated M2 chip, and uh, that is a well. The thing that's just extraordinary is that that the same chip that's powering my desktop, the chip that's powering. My laptop is the same chip that's also powering uh, 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 certain iPads right now, and uh, I just I can't I I think it was Annie Anako on the Twit Network that talked about this was four or five years ago when they started uh, uh, kind of really upping the ante on Apple made chips for the iPad and iPhone. He kept calling the, that chip a desktop class chip, and of course that inspires a lot of thinking about. You know, what can Apple do with that? And would Apple at any point try to, you know, create its own chip for a desktop, which is exactly what, what they released in 2020 with the M1 chip. And I will say that, uh, I am probably not the, the right audience for an iPad Pro. Uh, the super large screen is nice, but not super interesting to me, uh, because I prefer a laptop. Um, and the super high-end screen and all the things that come with the, the iPad Pro is just not what I need based on my computing, but I am running the M1 iPad 5th generation, I'm sorry, the iPad Air 5th generation, and it's just been smooth as silk and a really great travel. In the so that is one uh, opportunity. Um, the second opportunity is the new, like, just straight-up uh, iPad. So they're calling it the iPad 2022. And as Tom's guide calls it, this is the standard iPad. Um, I will say that uh, this is not uh, – for me, this, is, this isn't a bad choice at all, but it, the reviews have been pretty – uh, pretty meager, suggesting that it just wasn't worth the price. Uh, there is no, uh, you know, M1 chip in it. It's just using their standard mobile chip. Although, you know, Apple-based mobile chips are are pretty high quality. Um, but it, you know, starts at you know just four hundred forty-nine dollars, which is more expensive than you know Android, even some of the higher-end Android tablets, and certainly more expensive than some of the lower-end Chrome OS tablets. But uh, I thought it looked like a perfectly, you know, nice device. And they've also updated the form factor so it looks a little more modern um, and less of the form factor, which was really went back all the way back to, you know, the iPad, you know, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So that is another product there. And then the third one was a new Apple TV 4K. No one was really expecting this device, but there's an A15 chip in it. 
Uh, it can also do Dolby Vision and HDR10+. And then I read somewhere else, and I couldn't find an article to confirm this, but I know it's the case. They have basically gotten rid of the lower-end Apple TVs, and this is the Apple TV now. So even if you have a lower-resolution uh, television, the, the Apple TV at its its new price, which I believe is is it's either like 129 or maybe it's even 99 um, but it's it's kind of the replacement unit now for all of that. And I have to say, like, I, you know... And for those of you that have listened to the podcast for a while know that I've kind of gone uh, circles on this just a little bit. Um, uh, I, I I like the Apple ecosystem. I think that all these things work really well together, and that's the best benefit of all these devices is that uh, they just really talk to each other really nicely. And I've got some other examples of that in a moment with some other updates that have happened in the last few weeks. But the bottom line is is that you know, you can actually buy a relatively uh, interesting group of devices together, uh, phone plus uh, iPad plus a laptop plus an Apple TV that all talk to each other, all integrate really well to another, one another, probably total for under $2,500 for the whole set. And so I think that's an enormously compelling price for, you know, how these devices work together. Um, out of curiosity, Wes, any of these devices tempting you at all in any way, shape or form? Definitely uh, the option for a laptop. Um, I had another situation. I've had several with my uh, school laptop, which I am not authorized to install software. Or it turns out even authorize a certificate in a hotel that I'm staying in. So I could not even get on the Wi-Fi to do a podcast on a Saturday morning. Um, It was a little bit irritating. So I am... I'm ready to um, I'm ready to get my own my own machine so that I can like, actually install software myself. It's a little bit crazy, um, but I think that uh, you know the iPad Pro. I'm curious to hear you say that you were a candidate for the iPad Pro because at one time I think you went on a trip where you were you were iPad only. Was that a Pro that you had on that trip? Uh, no, it was that Air Air M1, and okay. I did pick up the. Uh, and I, I, I picked up a used version of this, the $300 iPad keyboard that is magnetic. And I'm, of course, it's not sitting up here with me in my office, but um, that is such an enormously compelling uh, product because the keyboard is super nice and the case itself is pretty hardy. And yeah, I, I have been able to uh, just travel with the iPad now as a device. Now, you know, there's limitations to that. And I think multitasking is is still okay, not great on the iPad. And for me, that's a really critical uh, thing that's missing uh, as, as part of this process. But yeah, I, I like the iPad. And, and you know, part of it too is that I'm not doing video editing. I'm not doing audio editing. I, I'm mostly a consumer on the iPad. Plus I do office things. So that's email, docs, uh, very little content creation. If I'm creating content, that's almost exclusively on a, on a laptop or a desktop. So... So yeah, interesting stuff. Um, I also want to highlight that there on Monday of this week, there was the release of a uh, new software across the entire Apple line. Um, the first one I want to talk about is OS 10 uh, Ventura, which is the latest version of OS 10. Uh, and it went out, or it's, it's been in kind of its final mode. They had a public beta going back several months, but it's been in its final mode for a couple weeks now. So, and I installed it on one of my, my uh, MacBook Airs on Monday. And there's a couple articles that, that, you know, you can read that will go into some detail. 9to5Mac on October 24th talks about two primary big changes. One of them is called camera continuity, which I'll talk about in a second. The second one is stage manager. And um, I just want to mention stage manager for just one second, because that's also a feature on the M1 iPads that this this new way of uh, kind of interacting and multitasking. Um, I will tell you that I've been through the video on how to use it on the on 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 OS 10. I've been through the video on how to use it on iPad. And it's just not that intuitive to me at this point. Um, although I must fully admit that only recently, despite having been back with an iPad for uh, almost a, a year and a half now, 
um, the multitasking wasn't all that natural to me either. So the split window and the things you can do with multiple windows, I, that really hasn't been a real reality for me un, un, until the last couple of weeks, really, uh, with the iPad. I did want to mention the other feature, which is a really interesting one to me. It's called Continuity Camera, and it is something that if you have a new-ish iPhone and then um, uh, uh, OS X Ventura, you can use your iPhone um, as a camera. And um, is that what you're doing now, Wes? Indeed, it oh, is. Wow. But, but I'm but I'm using the XSplit VCam. So, and I'm all wireless. So I'm I'm actually using. Oh, what is the solution you told me about? Where I could I upgraded the Mac so that I can now use Sidecar. Oh, the the the, the firmware or something something. Yeah, open yeah, yeah. People can go back in the show notes on yeah. that. So anyway, I may. I may need to do a wired version of this, but we're I'm I'm wirelessly connected via the the uh, the M1 Mac here. But I've got a like I don't know eight dollar aluminum uh, kind of tape on with adhesive um, holder, which is it's, <laughs> I'm getting so old. Uh, MagSafe. It has the MagSafe yeah. magnet for my iPhone 14, and this is I'm gonna have to. I could be better if I was like. I don't know. I, it's not. It's not quite perfect, but uh, it's kind of cool to be able to have that higher, higher quality camera. And I hopefully my wireless is going to hold up. I've been on like a, I think a six forty by four eighty resolution or some four eighty maybe, and I stepped up to seven twenty. So anyway, it has a bit more of an angle. If one of my dogs was in here, they could actually. I don't know. You're you're seeing a little more of the room than we did before. But yes, you're saying that with continuity. People will not have to be such geeks and go to XSplit VCAM, uh, which I got, by the way, for 30 bucks because they have an October 50% off sale. So. Yeah. Um, but they'll be able to do this kind of thing just using the regular Mac OS iOS. Is that correct? Right. So, and the reason why that, and I mean, I had heard about this a couple months ago at, at, when it was in beta, um, but I, I didn't really play with it. But I did get, or I did read a, an advertisement when I was uh, traveling around last week that this is an item that apparently was co-designed with Apple. This is a Belkin MagSafe. Uh, I guess the best way to describe it is it's like a little holder for your phone so that you can pop it on the back. You, of your you got one of those? I did. Here it is. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, okay. So, and, and it's, it's cool because it, it's MagSafe, right? So here it, it is popping on my phone. And it does two things. It can be a little stand if you want to set your phone up like that, right? So what I call kitchen mode, right? When you're watching something on your phone and cooking dinner. And then has this little tiny ledge thing uh, that is also available on back. And then the idea behind that is is that you take your uh, you take your laptop. So here we are. It's an iPad. I'm sorry, an, an, an iMac. I'm sorry, a MacBook Air is what I'm trying to say. He has so many screens, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't even started talking about the Chromebooks. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, I I wish that weren't correct, but that is true. But it just literally, like, just sits on top, and it's pretty sturdy, right? And and I've tried it, and the the camera on my iPhone is a thousand times better than even the newest integrated webcams, even on Mac hardware, because they're notoriously bad at updating uh, webcams, uh, uh, they've been the, the same resolution and same quality for several generations of Macs. And here we are, um, you know, I can now use my iPhone and it worked with Zoom, it works with FaceTime, works with anything that you could use with a regular webcam. And, you know, for 99% of, of your usage, it probably doesn't really matter. But there are times when you're on a video conference and you really want to send your best, right? Um, you know, I think Wes and I both have the philosophy that the audio is way more important than the video when we're podcasting. Um, and we, you, if you're a regular listener, you know that once in a while we run into some, some issues because of bandwidth or other technical problems. But I could see a scenario where I would absolutely use this webcam or use my phone as a webcam to get a higher quality picture. So that's new in, in, in OS 10 Ventura. Really interesting stuff. And to completely go down a squirrel, uh, Peggy George. Jason loves the hair and asks, are you getting professional pictures taken? You look great. Um, I, well, I have taken a couple of professional photos, but yes, I, my hair is, is beautiful and feathery right now and, <laughs> you know, not four feet long. So I have that going for me right now for absolutely sure. 
So a couple other quick uh, uh, updates here. Uh, oh, there's another article I also wanted to share. It's from 9to5Mac on October 24th. Should you upgrade your Mac to Mac OS Ventura? If you have a school-owned Mac, chances are that decision's been made for you. And so um, uh, uh, I, I'm on a campus that does very aggressively lock down and manage um, our devices, not unlike Dr. Fryer's campus as well. So I will have to wait until our IT director decides it's time to update to OS 10 Ventura. My guess is it's probably not until spring or summer, uh, which is unfortunate, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, but... Uh, you know, if, if your Mac, if, if your, you know, uh, iMac, home iMac, or your MacBook Air, or you're rocking an older or newer MacBook Pro, if it's your only machine and you've got mission critical applications on it and you're not using, you know, just the web or something, don't upgrade, right? Like that's definitely an opportunity for early adopters. And I felt okay updating on, um, my personal MacBook because it's, you know, well, as unfortunately or fortunately, I have other options in case, uh, you know, something gets screwed up there. But, you know, I, it, I think it's maybe even more true um, on the Mac platform. There's been a lot of cases where things don't work as expected when upgrades happen. So I would generally uh, defer to the, the, the point for the point one version. So um, in the case of uh, uh, Ventura, it's the first kind of maintenance release. I would just say on that note, it's been a while since I've kind of been bitten by that, uh, being someone who is a pretty hardcore early adopter of things, I would often update quick. And when I was running more client-side software, uh, especially at one time I was like running a accounting software that I was doing business stuff with and other things, and it was like, oh, I've upgraded my machine, and I you know now it doesn't work. <clears throat> I run a lot more web-based stuff, too. But um, I think that's just, and maybe everybody listening already knows this, but it's uh, just really important to take an audit of the software programs that you run, the things that you, you know, rely on uh, daily, and just make sure that they have come up with the um, requisite update uh, until you go ahead and pull, pull the trigger with that. But it's certainly, I mean, I'm not using by any means my, uh, my MacBook as a, as a Chromebook and just being browser only, but there's a heck of a lot of stuff that, that I am just running in the browser, so. Anyway, just be cautious with that, but excited to see that integration. It's another example of how the ecosystem of Apple, you know, is a very, very powerful ecosystem in allowing for that kind of functionality. I mean, I think this is super cool. Um, I think last week maybe I used the camera, but I was using EvoCam or something like that. I wasn't able to do the, the virtual background that I can do with this this uh, VCam, what is it, XSplit VCam. And uh, anyway, cool that Apple's bringing more of those features um, to be able to utilize your devices. And like you said, way exceed the capabilities of built-in cameras in, in computers. So. Totally. Well, a couple other quick links here, and then we'll move on from, from, from Apple here. Uh, iPad OS 16.1 was released this week. Lots of new interesting features there. We are uh, 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 linked to a great article from 9to5Mac. Uh, if you have a newer iPad with an M1 chip, you get that stage manager available. But again, I have felt that uh, it's just it's just not quite uh, intuitive to me yet. And then there's also iOS 16 for your iPhone that uh, uh, 16.1, which is actually the dot release um, that is also available and and does bring a variety of new features. And you know, it's 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 always a little frustrating for me because of I support a lot of people, not just professionally, but I am what I like to call family IT guy. So I am fairly regularly uh, helping out folks um, in my family with that. And so it means I have to kind of keep up on a lot of the stuff, you know, so I can assist and help out. Um, but there are a lot of nifty new features, uh, the ability to edit uh, uh, text messages when you use iMessage. Um, there's some new uh, shared photo albums in both uh, iPad OS and iOS uh, there are some, uh, a lot of fixes too that make things more efficient. I would make one important note, however, and, and I've seen several references to it, including some folks that, that cite some research about this. As an example, since I've moved my, um, 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 uh, since I've moved to iOS, or I'm sorry, iPad 16 on my iPad, my battery life has taken a real uh, 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 hit. Um, and my understanding is that's actually very normal, uh, that typically iOS um, um, 
uh, updates mean it takes a little while for the phone to reconfigure all the pieces to where it's not wearing the battery down. So that's just something to remember if you're updating. What you just mentioned with the shared iCloud photo library is the number one thing. I I, I, I appreciate all of your uh, Apple World updates because I saw a few articles with this but didn't read these in depth. But the, the library share is really of interest to me. My wife is is very frequently on a weekly basis, you know, asking me to airdrop some pictures that I've taken that she'd like to use. Um, she's a health coach now and she shares all kinds of, of photographs. Um, and anyway, it's going to be kind of cool to just have that shared library. So I think that's a feature that we will probably, probably do, but we haven't done the updates. I put this on the screen, but Peggy reports that her updates went very smoothly and she didn't have any, any problems and everything went pretty fast. So I think I'll probably be updating to obviously the iOS before I'll be doing some of the other Mac OS updates, but those are some good, good upgrades and good features. Awesome. And Peggy's actually put in a link to uh, two new iOS 16 features that actually just drain your iPhone from CNET. So apparently you are not the only one experiencing battery issues with iOS 16. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that Apple products generally manage batteries better than their um, alternatives. And so, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get it worked out. Um, and I think Apple learned uh, a long time ago from what I think was a, a gate, a battery gate, uh, that that battery life does matter to folks. Um, I will say, interestingly, that my iPhone 13 Pro, which I, I have no desire to update to the iPhone 14, and there's a variety of reasons behind that, but my battery has taken a real uh, hit for the worse in the, the last couple of weeks, um, and I went from 100% battery health um, uh, about 60 days ago to I'm now down to 93% battery health. And luckily, there are uh, there's particularly one from Anchor that I absolutely love. There are wonderful MagSafe chargers now that are tiny that I can just throw in my backpack or my day bag, um, and I can just pop on the back of this, and I can get back up to 100% within an hour. It's not a it's not a, a huge deal at all, but um, you know that that is a bummer that uh, you know that the batteries do degrade over time. They do, and yes, and so. Uh... For all of us as teachers out there, we that's one of the things we need to inspire the next generation to do. I'm sure there's lots and lots of people working on it right now, but we need a breakthrough in battery technology, not only for our mobile handheld computing devices, but for our vehicles and for all in our homes and all those kinds of things that, you know, we, uh, we need to transition to um, more electrical power and better batteries soon. But lithium and the status quo technology is being optimized, but we haven't seen any, anything revolutionary uh, come to the consumer battery yet. But hopefully with the March technology, we'll see that. Totally. And then two quick articles, just because, uh, you know, we might as well clean up our, our last bit of Apple fanboy here. Uh, it's a great article, two great articles about the Apple Watch. Uh, one of them is about a doctor that says, hey, I'm not a crazy Apple guy. In fact, he doesn't even own an iPhone. But he recommends the Apple Watch to every single patient that, that he meets. And he particularly is aiming this at those above the age of 60 because of the extraordinary features not just some of the health monitoring, but he talks about some kind of unsavory situations uh, that involve patients of his that would have been different if uh, they'd had an Apple Watch on. And it just has so many features that are around notifications and health and safety that he recommends to everyone. And for those of you wondering, there's another article from 9to5Mac that talks about that there's a study that looks at the blood oxygen sen sensor and it claims that the Apple Watch blood oxygen sensor is as reliable as a medical grade device. And I'm not surprised by that just because I'm pretty sure that that was, you know, one of one of their minimum requirements was that it wasn't a joke over at Apple, that it actually had a, a, a high chance of, of, of being accurate. But uh, I'm looking forward to the day, and I don't think it's all that far off, where the Apple Watch might replace, for example, uh, my blood glucose sensors that, that, that I, I right now wear with a patch that lasts 10 days that I have to switch out. And so I think the Apple Watch is headed very much in the right direction. Fantastic. Well, congratulations, sir. You did cover every one of those Apple articles, so that's outstanding. Yeah, Fanboy week here at the EdTech Situation Room. So, Dr. Fryer, where shall we go next, sir? Well, let's um, 
Let's do a couple that I put under media literacy that fall under uh, conspiracy theory. So the the Apple Watch and the the March of Science and all that um, is uh, you know positively represented by the Apple Watch and its health news. Um, this is an article. Actually, this is from back in August. So this was August 17th, and this is Ars Technica. And the headline is Anti-Vaccine Activists Giddily Celebrate As Polio Virus Spreads in New York. We are in the midst of our Fruit Loop Conspiracy Theory unit in my middle school media literacy class. And part of what we're trying to do there is uh, discuss web literacy and how we can avoid really outlandish, uh, fringe, crazy ideas. Um, and I would put, you know, anti-vaxxers that are anti-science in that category, uh, although we do not really take on COVID and, and those kinds of contemporary conspiracy theories. We talk about the moon landings and focus on historical things. But sadly, polio, which we thought was completely banned from the planet, has had a resurgence, and it has specifically in New York City, um, some folks that run some anti-vax websites, the quote, Children's Health Defense, published articles about the so-called alleged preventable, basically saying that these were scare quotes and uh, a COVID silver lining um, was the dip in vaccinations that we've seen. And it's just, it's just really, really sad uh, to see this. And media literacy has a, a part to play in this because we have, some fairly large segments of our society uh, listening to some pretty, uh, I would say, fringe folks and organizations. Um, one of those, the uh, proprietor of, of InfoWars, um, you know, has just faced, we talked about that on the show two weeks ago, some substantial fines as a result of his conspiracy theories around Sandy Hook and um, other things. But anyway, I thought that was... Sad, but it was also, uh, I think, another reminder of, of why media literacy education is important. And we need to be talking with students and others about uh, how do we vet sources? How do we decide who it is that we're going to trust and why science is really important? And we should be thankful for science and, uh, and, and hopefully not just reject science. The other link that I put below that, again, this is under our media literacy heading, but it probably, I don't know, it could have gone under miscellaneous too. Um, is a 60 Minutes episode, and I have not seen the entire thing, but the headline is Dominion Voting System CEO Speaks Out Against Conspiracy Theories. And I think it was in the show two weeks ago uh, that I might have mentioned this. You know, in terms of, of how we find a path forward through this situation where we've got really um, pretty significant large media outlets uh, saying things like, um, the 2020 election was fraudulent. Um, the, you know, President Biden was not elected legitimately. Um, one of the, the big things that was said in the, in the course of all of that, stop the steal, quote unquote, was that this Dominion voting systems, um, was to blame, uh, because, you know, of, of, uh, internet hacks and there's all other kinds of theories about this. And I think I might have mentioned, hopefully it's not going to come down to needing lawsuits that are suing, you know, media companies, uh, holding them accountable and financially liable in order to stop some of this. But I, it's been a while, um, but I, this was on, on 60 Minutes on October 23rd of this month. And I think this is, this is important to watch. Um, you know, we're not a political show and we're not going to go into any kind of, of hardcore political uh, rants for sure here, but, you know, I, we are both very strong advocates for social studies education, citizenship education, the importance of, of voting and being knowledgeable voters. And so the, the intersection here with, um, with democracy, with voting, the fact that the midterm elections are just a couple weeks away, um, there, there, there's, there's some intersections there. So I think that, Finding ways to talk about conspiracy theories in, and of course, not be fired. That was the title of my, uh, my Atlas presentation that was going to be in, well, I did have it actually in, in May, but I had to change the name. Somebody wanted me to change the name uh, of the title of the session, but it's the same thing. It's saying, look, let's, let's find some ways to talk to students about this that's developmentally appropriate. Uh, that's not going to hopefully be, 
ridiculously polarizing, but it's going to be informative and helpful in terms of the ways in which we navigate uh, this fractured and, and polluted and oftentimes confusing information landscape that we find ourselves in. So that was on 60 Minutes Overtime. And like I said, I know we should read every single article to the last word before we share it and watch every single video. And I will say, having not done that with videos with students in the past. It is super important that you always watch the whole thing before you show it to students. Uh, I'm confident 60 Minutes is not going to have anything that's going to surprise us. Uh, that's on my watch list for the next week. Um, and I'm glad to see continued discussion and dialogue about this because, frankly, we need to have some consensus and agreement on things like, do we have a uh, free and fair and legitimate election process in the United States. There are a few things that are probably as, as core and foundational to our country as a representative democracy. So important stuff there and an overlay to media literacy. Any thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, the landscape is, is, is changing uh, ever so quickly. And I feel like we really haven't caught up with 15 years ago yet. Right. (laughs) That in a lot of ways we're struggling with the diversity and the ability of anyone to publish anywhere at any time. And I have a, actually have a couple related articles that I think kind of highlight this tension. Um, I saw an article uh, last week, or I'm sorry, a couple of days ago that I threw in the show notes. And then I found another article today when, when I was kind of digging in on it and it's about TikTok. And uh, t- t- for example, I saw several headlines this week about how Google is, is scared of TikTok because people seem to be going there as a, um, as a resource to find information, right? To, not, not just to, to be entertained or to be distracted, but to actually find information. And there was an article uh, in The Verge on, on October 24th that says that TikTok is increasingly becoming a news source. And then another author on, at, at The Verge on September 21st said that uh, he decided to do a little uh, experiment, which is to replace Google with TikTok, and what he says is that it was easier uh, to do and more successful than he guessed uh, based on on his experience there. And um, I am concerned with TikTok as a searchable archive of information because I feel like that's not really what the platform was made for. But the point that, and the author uh, that 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 did the replacement experiment, his name is David Pierce, to give him a, a, a credit here, but he makes the point that you know it doesn't replace Google for what maybe you're using Google for, but it might replace YouTube. And if you're searching for information on YouTube, and I have become increasingly interested and concerned, maybe one word for it. Um, of the notion of YouTube being a place to go to find information, not because it, it, it's any better or worse than Google, but it just seems so inefficient to me. If you're looking for a quick answer to something, why you'd search videos. But I think Mr. Pierce is making that point to say that there is a, um, a, a definitely a differential between the two and you might choose to use a video resource instead. And what it tells me, and, and it wouldn't be a new thing for, for, for either me or Wes to, to make this claim, but the bottom line is it doesn't really matter what the platforms are. We have to, we have an affirmative obligation as K-12 educators to help students navigate these platforms. And while I can't say I would, you know, tell students to use TikTok in an assignment, for example, as a, as a news resource, at the same time, remember, YouTube started off as a dating app. I mean, that was the, the way YouTube initially entered the world because they thought that uh, that humans wouldn't want to share video on a platform like that unless there was an enticement like the possibility of dating, I guess. Um, which is funny to me because I couldn't disagree more with that notion. People are desperate to share video of themselves um, on wide platforms like that. I mean, it's the reason why you know community television has existed, um, you know, for 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 seventy years in the United States because people like being on TV. Uh, that's a, a a part of kind of the human soul, I think. But the bottom line is is that you shouldn't be teaching how to search Google or how to search YouTube or even how to search TikTok. The primary lesson is how to evaluate the sources to make sure you're getting high quality uh, information. I am a little embarrassed about the amount of time I spend on TikTok. It's been less than last, uh, uh, let's say, eight weeks or so 
partly because of my job and also because I'm trying to be selective about it. But I will tell you, I learned a lot on TikTok. Barbecue TikTok is awesome. Um, for some reason, I'm on dermatology TikTok, uh, and I don't understand why it led me there, but I apparently interact with the videos, so it keeps sending me more. I've learned a ton of information on dermatology TikTok, of all places. Um, and there are wide varieties of very informational things that I think are, are interesting and, and, and worthy. So, um, you know, I, I was kind of... Uh, scared of that headline uh uh it, it it caused me pause for certain but i do think it's super interesting that 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 younger folks might be going there and i'm not saying we should tell them not to do that we just need to make sure that they're ready with the tool set to make sure that information is valid and useful to them so a thought on that then i'm going to share a comment that peggy uh put in the chat and push back on it just a little bit um i it was either it was in the last month We've, we've missed a few shows, but it was in, I think, one of the last two episodes that you did share a similar article that talked about the number of people using TikTok as their primary source of news. Yeah. That is a huge, huge headline. You know, sometimes I think we share so many links and so many articles, and this probably just happens with the news in general. And I think Neil Postman talks about this in some of his, his writings about amusing ourselves to death and, and uh, you know, critiquing the news. Sometimes it's hard to sort ascertain value or just levels of priority and importance. And I would put that particular article and these two that you put in at the top of the show. Maybe we'll make that something to do with the show title. And I think that possibly nothing personifies more the gap between modern, current, present literacy and the ways in which we are communicating, receiving information, sharing information, than this disconnect that in a lot of classrooms, video does, it does not have a, certainly a primary seat at the table in terms of how we're learning. I mean, this is not true, of course, for, I'm sure for the Digital Academy in Montana and for a lot of distance learning, but in terms of face-to-face -face instruction, uh, there can be a wide gap there. Um, Peggy said, and this is a common refrain, she's not the only one saying this, TikTok is just a communication tool and what you do with it depends on the user. I mean, it certainly does depend on the user, for, for sure. I did not know barbecue TikTok existed. In fact, I had sort of stumbled around, figured, you know, not doing much with my TikTok account and then when uh, when Jason shared about that, I thought, aha, you know, barbecue is an ideal visual medium for sharing photographs, for sharing videos. And so I just I made my TikTok account a a barbecue account. <laughs> it's been fun. Um, but here's here's the big the big the big but um, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company, which is a Chinese AI company, which I would say has some genius folks running it because they have created, I think, well, I don't know what it, how it compares to YouTube, but it is an incredible platform for the ingestion and redistribution of user-created video. It's just incredible how much content is uploaded and watched daily on that platform. We have seen, and this ties into the tech correction and, you know, elections and weaponization of social media, we've seen how the, the choices that platforms make about whether or not they moderate or, if you want to say, censor, gatekeep content, if they're going to block people. I didn't say Alex Jones's you know, name earlier, but Alex Jones with InfoWars is an example of somebody who eventually was kicked off of YouTube, kicked off of, of, um, of Twitter, uh, kicked off of Facebook as well. Um, you know... There, there absolutely needs to be some boundaries. Well, these are private companies, by the way, and so they have the right. They're not bound by the, the First Amendment here in the United States. Uh, they can moderate and gatekeep the content as they, as they uh, see fit. And um, we need to have limits and boundaries uh, because otherwise the Internet becomes a cesspool, and, and there are parts of the Internet that, that are. But I think the fact that China and not a Silicon Valley-based, United States primarily-based. Ooh, this is fun. I'm like, I'm starting to flicker around. I wonder what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> the algorithm is going to do something to my words here. Um, China is the one who's deciding what's on TikTok and what's not. Uh, it, there's a lot of opacity to all platforms in terms of their algorithms and how they do and why they do what they're doing. 
But I think that the fact that it's Chinese owned and operated and is becoming a huge information source for a ton of citizens in the United States has a bigger impact than, oh, we're watching this on Netflix tonight or, you know, just like the entertainment level when it comes to the news level. So it's, it's definitely something worth digging into. And that would, I don't know that in my middle school media literacy classes, how much we would dig into it, but oh my gosh, I'm thinking about the Summer Institute in, uh, in uh, digital literacy and just the, the importance of digging into that because it's like, okay, so here's the statistic. What does this mean? Does this mean we should be doing anything different as teachers, as parents or grandparents? Um, you know, I, I, I don't have all those answers, but I, I can say it is a huge, huge deal because that's a, that's a big shift. Okay, can I do another an AI one? And then I'd love for I'd love for you. I saw the podcasting pocket apps one you did. I saw the uh, the Google Meet meets Zoom rooms, and then the other AI ones that you did. So we got like eleven minutes. Well, we started this a little bit late. Uh, I shared this one with my kids today. This is Ars Technica on October twenty sixth. Darth Vader's voice will be AI generated from now on. Um, there is not a Wikipedia article for this tool yet. Uh, but the tool is called Respeacher. James Earl Jones, who is now 91 years old, has understandably decided to hang up his uh, microphone when it comes to being the voice of Darth Vader. And um, he's given permission to Disney, who now owns the Star Wars franchise, to use his voice and to, um, with permission, voice clone him. So we'll still get to hear his wonderful, wonderful voice. Respeacher, if you go ahead and go to that link, um, advertises itself as voice cloning for content creators and creates speech that's indistinguishable from the original speaker. Perfect for filmmakers, game developers, and other content creators. And I should probably take a screenshot of that and write below it or other political bad act, you know, bad actors wanting to weaponize, you know, uh, deep fake video, basically. Um, this isn't going to make the, the um you know visual actually like a deep fake you know like you've seen that we've seen the tom cruise deep fake etc um but i i would i would be very surprised if in these next couple of weeks leading up to the midterm elections in the united states we don't see some kind of deep fake video or recorded audio because with this now commercially available tool you could if you have enough examples of someone's voice make them say anything you want. And that is both an exciting thing when it comes to thinking about Star Wars living on and James Earl Jones's voice, you know, continuing to, to, to uh, legally with permission be the voice of Darth Vader. But it's a bit terrifying when it comes to thinking about elections and politics and the way in which some of these tools could be used by bad actors. Yeah, totally. Um, the two other AI articles that I want to mention, um, one's a huge rabbit hole, so I, I, I may pause on that one, but it's a great article from, from Tech Radar on October 8th that talks about how Google's uh, editing tricks, um, uh, really um, amongst all of, of their properties, including Google Photos itself, is really rendering Photoshop to be not relevant anymore for the vast majority of users. And I also know that, that there there is a lot of AI in the feature planning of all the Adobe tools too. So you know, uh, don't get me wrong that they will be available to the professionals using Photoshop as well. But I have to say that's been echoing my personal experience. Um, one of the things that that uh, I, I spend most of my design time in Canva. I think Canva is just one of the best pieces of web-based software that has ever existed. It's just such a part of my my daily life in, in, in all the work that I do. And while I do have access to the Adobe suite uh, because I'm a University of Montana employee, um, I do spend a lot of time in Acrobat, uh, uh, Acrobat Pro because of its accessibility features and its ability to take uh, PDFs and make them more accessible. The bottom line is I don't really need to show Photoshop and I really don't need uh, Illustrator um, as as much as I used to, but Canva it has a lot of AI based tools in it, including a wonderful background eraser um, on photos, and that's something that used I used to be pretty good at. Um, that I would oftentimes, you know, create a a, a, a 
PNG or a GIF that that had a, an empty background, so I could paste just an object into uh, you know some other piece. But I don't even do that anymore because I just drag the photo into Canva and I press the background remover and it's gone. Um, and and it's 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 wonderful every single time, right? Like it does a great job every single time. And um, it, it, you know, I think that's something to to note, right? That. There will always be folks that want to do the finite stuff. I mean, I, I know some photographers that do some amazing things with filters and um, other uh, really detail-oriented parts of Photoshop. But I want to mention that. But the other article uh, that I just wanted to to, to mention, and I, I wish I could remember who I heard this from uh, uh, when I put this link in a few weeks back, but there is a lot of interesting AI-based uh, uh, tools that are coming, and... Uh, there is a uh, an AI set called GPT-3. You can get you can learn more about it at OpenAI.com. But one of the things that uh, I've I've seen this in context of a discussion is that you know we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort, and I'm not saying the efforts wasted, but we spend a lot of time and effort purchasing software to make sure that students are writing their own stuff and not copying off of others. But we're in an era where software that's becoming extremely affordable can write five paragraphs on any subject that you list in a document without without copying the web, right? It's not going out to the web and finding five paragraphs and pasting them there. It's reading several, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of articles and writing its own five-paragraph essay. And I, I, of course, have the most mixed feelings about this, right? Like, I, I think that you can easily say, well, that's not that big of a deal. We let kids use calculators and, you know, we should be able to let kids do that. But it's different when, you know, they're they're doing the creation component when we're trying to teach that creation component, right? Um, you know, in the same way that we talked a little bit about uh, uh, how the AI world has taken the art world by storm in the last 12 months because AI created images have started winning things like art contests and, and other juried prizes, um, which, you know, uh, creates all sorts of, of, of tough questions to answer. But the bottom line is, is that it, this is coming to a school near you. And the bottom line is, is that I'm not saying we should embrace it or not embrace it. I just think we need to start having these discussions about what that looks like. And I've actually purchased a, a, a license to an AI writer that is pretty interesting. It's called Auto Writer Pro. Um, it's really a spammer tool. I mean, that's the way I would describe it is that, you know, it can uh, create blog posts. In fact, it's got a WordPress plugin. So, you know, write me six paragraphs on, you know, uh, the Apple Watch. And it, it allows you to do that pretty quickly. And the writing is okay, not great. But the bottom line is, is that you can, right? Like these tools are getting better and better and better and they're not going away. Uh, all right. Well, I had to drop in a new geek of the week um, with that that the, one of my students shared. So crazy. Uh, can you tell us? Uh, you've got so many great ones here. Uh, tell us about Pocket Cast. What's up with that? Oh, well, we had reported uh, earlier this year on a previous episode of Tech Situation Room that Pocket Cast was uh, purchased by Automatic. They're the group that makes WordPress. And uh, uh, it was a little sad for me because it was uh, public radio uh, properties that previously owned Pocket Cast, and I thought that just was a really great marriage. But what Automatic did is what they tend to do. They open-sourced it and have released the source code for both the iOS and the Android version of Pocket Cast. And uh, the reason why I mention it, Pocket Cast is still by far my favorite uh, uh, podcast uh, aggregator. But more importantly... I think there's going to be a whole new wave of plugins and extensions and potentially new ways Pocket Cast are used to create new apps or new plugins or new features in the Pocket Cast set. And I still just think podcasting is such an amazing platform for distribution of information that that uh, anytime that there's you know energy around the apps, I think it's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. And Google Meet is, it's going to merge with Zoom Rooms. Well, are you going to be able to join? 
Yes, great article from Chrome Unboxed. I, I'm going to call them our friends, even though we don't know anyone at Chrome Unboxed. But um, <laughs> our friends at Chrome Unboxed reported, this was today even, that there is something going on in the background, um, and Google has announced this. This is not something that is is, is, is rumored or purported. This is happening. But Google announced on its uh, cloud blog that Zoom and Google Meets calls um, will be able to to, to work with one another, talk with one another. So in other words, you can, it sounds like what it's going to mean is that you can join a, uh, a Zoom room from a Google Meet and you can join a Google Meet from a Zoom room and essentially, you know, merge those together. And for schools uh, that have bought one tool or the other or have created one tool or the other, I think that's a wonderful news that, that they're able to do that. Now, I happen to have access to both. And Zoom is my primary video conferencing tool at work, but I think the ability to join from one or the other um, is, is is pretty great. Um, and to quote the Google Cloud blog directly, this means Zoom rooms will be able to join Google Meet meetings and Google Meet devices will be able to join Zoom meetings either directly from a Zoom room or a Google Meet device calendar with a single touch of a button by entering a meeting code. And I just think that's a really thoughtful integration on both of their parts. And I honestly, it's not the kind of cooperation that I'm used to in 2022, but good on these two companies for working together. Here is my connection to that. And I just had to look at my blog for this. Did you ever use the Blue Jeans Network, Jason, for video conferencing? Um, I, I, I've been in some rooms that have used it, but it's super cool. So this is a, a post I did in April of 2011. Multipoint video conferencing, H323 and Skype on the Blue Jeans Network. So Blue Jeans, and I don't know what the status is currently, um, would allow those of us with these, you know, H323 expensive, you know, room systems uh, to basically interoperate not only with Skype, but I'm thinking back in the day, there was there was another uh, Google video option, but it was this idea of crossing the streams and bringing them together. So that is that's powerful. It's going to be interesting from a security standpoint, um, how that is going to how that's going to work. But man, that's just it's amazing. Yeah, I, I agree totally. It's, and it's just such great news to see big software companies like that working together. All right. Well, even though we are at the top of the hour, we technically have um, three more minutes. So we, we definitely have time for the Geeks of the Week. Is there Are there any other articles, Dr. Neifer? We've done it. You've done a yeoman's job here. Um, anything else we want to throw out before the Geek of the Week? Yeah, I just want to give one one sad note um, that it sounds like it may not uh, uh, it may not matter big picture, but Go- or, I'm sorry, Lego has announced that they're discontinuing Mindstorms uh, in 2022. And for those of you unaware, Mindstorms was a software and hardware platform that essentially allowed you to create uh, machinery, moving machinery. Um, with, uh, Legos and parts that worked with, uh, iOS, uh, Android, Windows, Mac software. They even had a plugin for, for Fire OS. And you, you could, for example, create a car, uh, that, that was powered by a Mindstorms engine. And, um, it's not all lost. I, I think it would be a huge mistake for Lego to let go of this functionality altogether. It sounds like what's happening is they're going to move that staff into other places at Lego and they have other initiatives that will eventually take up that slack. Mindstorms has been, you know, dazzling students and creating really wonderful and engaging lessons in hands-on classrooms, uh, since its start in, uh, I think it was the late night, yeah, September 1998. So uh, good on Lego for uh, looking forward and trying to find new ways to to create interaction. And I will always be an incredibly dedicated Lego guy. I just think Legos are one of the best things that have ever been created in the, the toy space. And I'm being paid today to help students build Legos and make them robotically animated. Uh, so from what I'm seeing here, they are still... They're still going to stick with Lego education, and so the build and code experiences. But so rather than this consumer side, they're going to right. still invest. And right now, we're using Lego Spike Prime, which we've just discovered in the last week is not a, not fully equivalent, you know, part wise uh, to to the Lego Mindstorms kits. So yeah, that's a that's a huge article. All right. Well, well, Wes, uh, I'm sorry. I hate no, to do right. this because it's going to extend our time a little bit more here. But I do want to note, I just opened up my my AI generator 
um, and uh, uh, it it to 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 generate an article, and the article title is I, and I I created the title Five Unknown Facts About Napoleon, and it just created uh, for me a four thousand character article with five unknown facts about Napoleon. Um, uh, Napoleon was one of the most notorious figures in history, but there are still some things about him that remain a mystery. Here are five unknown facts about Napoleon. And the five facts are Napoleon wasn't actually French and some description. Napoleon was extremely short, which is not actually entirely true. He was about average for his time. Uh, Napoleon was a skilled musician. Napoleon was superstitious. Napoleon was a surprisingly good administrator. Um, and so it created that. So just imagine for a moment, you know, write a brief essay about, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, and all I needed to do was share a, um, um, uh, uh, share a, make up a headline, make, make yeah, up a title. That's all you really need to do. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, in, in, the, in, in rush times, isn't it nice that now we just make a headline and that's it. Yep. Oh my word. Okay. Geeks of the week. Um, my geek of the week. First one is called story blocks. Uh, have you heard of story blocks? Dr. I've not. All right. I had not either. Uh, if you are wanting to create videos and use stock video, uh, this is recommended by Dr. Michael Wesh, videographer and professor of anthropology extraordinaire from Kansas State University. This is just a huge library. There's over a million royalty-free footage, template music, and photo assets, as well as a, a easy-to-use video editor and unlimited downloads. So I was just discovering that uh, in the last couple days. I also put a link in here. I'll see if I can do this without playing the video. Uh, to the place I found this. Uh, this is kind of like a little rabbit hole I went down. Uh, in January of this year, uh, Dr. Wesh, Professor Wesh, published the trailer to his World Religions course, which is a five-minute video trailer. And, folks, if you know of a university professor who is themselves a comparable or better media creator than Michael Wesh, please let me know. What an incredible mind and an absolutely incredible educator, but also media creator and modeler of somebody who utilizes media in incredibly powerful ways to communicate effectively with his students. Now, the other thing I put in here, because this is Wes's style, right? I just said, I can't just do one. Here's where I actually link to this. I, um, <laughs> I told my wife this and, and my daughter and their eyes glazed over. Uh, this is my Fuel for Educational Change Agents uh, website, which I haven't really posted to since 2017. In 2013, Michael West gave a keynote at the Heartland eLearning Conference. I think I was actually uh, a keynote there as well. Uh, his presentation is called Think Whatever, The End of Wonder. And I have an audio podcast of his hour and three minute presentation. What an incredible dive this is and and prescient as far as for for seeing many of the same issues and things that we are talking about tonight uh with technology with the ways in which it can be so distracting um and and the ways in which it can be utilized um not as a wonder machine as Seymour Papert talked about but you know in in really mundane and and probably maybe mindless ways and it's going to challenge assessment he talked about that very thing in 2013 as Jason's you know using that AI tool so Phenomenal. I listened to half of this today. I'm going to listen to the, the next half of it on my commute tomorrow and on Friday. And the last thing that Jason inspired me to do, mentioning his um, tool uh, for AI, which was the AutoWriter Pro, uh, NovelAI.net, shared by one of my students today. You can simply, again, put in a headline or a prompt, and you'll get a novel. And these tools are mind-boggling. It is just incredible uh driven by ai painlessly construct unique stories thrilling tales seductive romances or just fool around anything goes so i have not played with this yet i'm not going to tell you that this is going to be kid friendly the fact that it says seductive romances and anything goes is probably a hint that this may not be a, an entirely family friendly uh platform but wow what a world we live in 
that was definitely an overshare and we are going over time. But you know what, guys? This is a podcast and I don't think anybody's going to shut us down. So, Well, luckily my geek of the week is, is going to be uh, uh, blissfully simple, but we've mentioned archive.org, which is just an, an amazing treasure trove of, of archived information from the really the world uh, uh, to this point. But there is a, there's a great article on Lifehacker that talks about that there are 12,000 vintage cookbooks on archives.org internet library. And I've, I've been looking at, 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 at these cookbooks for years because they have one of the best collections I've ever seen of church cookbooks and community cookbooks and company cookbooks and all of this kind of out of American kitchen lore, which I think is just both charming and wonderful. And, um, you know, it, it, some of these recipes, uh, you know, it, it, well, let's put it this way. If you like a good jello salad, these cookbooks will, will be really, really up your alley. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, if you grew up on kind of classic Americana cooking, which is definitely me, um, there's a lot of, of just wonderful recipes and, and old, you know, church and community cookbooks that I think are, are very much well worth your time. So, uh, there's a life hacker article that'll be in our show notes and then archive.org is the place to go. Wow. Well, Dr. Neifer, when you are not here, amazing us with your uh, Apple fanboy knowledge, your Google uh, expertise, and your knowledge of fine AI tools that may be used by a student near you, where can we find you on the interwebs? Hey, best place to find me, Tech Savvy Teach, uh, where um, 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 I tweet quite frequently. Hey, I also want to note the NCCE conference, March uh, Tacoma, Washington, a uh, wonderful opportunity, beautiful convention center there. Early word pricing ends on Friday. So go to ncce.org. You can see me um, and, and, and a lot of wonderful regional and national presenters uh, at that conference. Fantastic. And the date of that, is that in February? Uh, March. Uh, it's March. like March. Okay. Okay. Yeah, March something, something. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, I am W. Fryer on Twitter. You can go to westfryer.com slash after for a dearth of links that you can follow if you want barbecue TikTok and other things. Peggy, it was great to have you with us. It was good to be back. Um, we are excited that you are here and wherever you happen to be in space and time listening to us, we want to thank you. We want to encourage you to go to our website, edtechsr.com, where not only you can find our Google Doc of links, you'll also find archived 32 kilobit MP3 audio files and handbrake compressed approximately 100 megabyte video versions if you'd like to download the video version of the podcast. But you can see these archived shows on our YouTube channel where we encourage you to subscribe as well as our Facebook page. Peggy is asking where I found my snowy background. I can put that in the show notes. It is actually a YouTube video. And of course, this is being transcribed. And I, I didn't get permission to use that. Um, but I took a 60-second excerpt of that. And I've used that as a Zoom background through the pandemic. And just, you know, this is, this is the aspirational cabin. We got the fire. We got the snow. I don't think that snow's real. But hey, you know what? We're living in the virtual world. So. Thank you all so much. Uh, we will probably be back next week. But if we do make a change, we always share that on Twitter and Facebook. And those are the best places to follow us and make sure that you know what's happening with the show. So until next time, be savvy, stay savvy, <laughs> stay safe. And we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room as Jason heads to the Caribbean or Alaska. I'm not sure. <laughs> Iceland. I'm sure it's Iceland. Yeah, there you go. Good night, everyone.